0: Hey guys, welcome to Nutshell Politics. I'm actually out of town this week, so we'll be doing a Greatest Hits episode. It's one of my favorites from way back in August on the Kurds. We spent a whole episode spotlighting this fascinating people group in the Middle East. They're the largest ethnic group in the world to not have their own country, and they're one of the United States' greatest allies. So this is one of my most popular episodes at the time, so sit back and I hope you enjoy. And I'll be back with you all next week with a new episode. So let's go ahead and dive in. <laughs> Hi everyone, that's right, you've tuned in to another episode of the hot new podcast, Nutshell Politics. I'm your host, Justin Kenny, and I'm real excited to be here with you guys for today's episode. Instead of exploring an event that's taking place in the world today, I'm going to do a spotlight on a specific people group that's been in the news a lot over the last few years, and that is the Kurds, or the Kurdish people. To kick things off, it's important to understand that the Kurds are an ethnic group. They're not a religious group like you might talk about in the Middle East with the Sunnis and the Shias or the Karajites or the Druze or any of these others. The Kurds are an ethnic-based group. And in fact, they're actually the largest ethnic group in the world that doesn't have their own country. And that's partly why they've been in the news so much of the last decade or so. The Kurds, globally, have a population of anywhere from 30 to 40 million people. It's a little hard to tell exactly, but the grand majority of them can be found across four countries. That's Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and northern Syria. And the borders that kind of span those four countries, if you drew kind of a big circle around the Kurdish territories, frequently you'll hear that area called Kurdistan, or sometimes Greater Kurdistan. There are a fair amount of Kurdish diaspora people in other parts of the world. You find a fair amount in the former Soviet Union, Western Turkey and Istanbul. You also have seen some pop up in places in the West, particularly Germany. But the thing is that the Kurds are not the majority people group in any of these countries. They are significant minorities in those four. That said, they are the majority in an autonomous region that they do kind of govern themselves in Iraq, called Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, They pretty much run themselves there. You can find their own border crossings, their own governing bodies, but they are still technically a part of Iraq and answer to the Iraqi government, even though the Iraqi government largely leaves them alone. So they are the majority population in Iraqi Kurdistan, but that's not a recognized country on the global stage. Now, the Kurds have hit the news waves many times over the years here and there. Probably the most famous is their relationship with Saddam Hussein. Uh, He famously gassed and persecuted and killed a bunch of the Kurdish population in northern Iraq. But they've also popped up in recent years with the Syrian civil war. A lot of the refugees that are leaving Syria right now are Syrian Kurds. And as a result of this conflict, a lot of the current seekers of asylum in places in the West, like I said, Germany is probably the highest, but there are others as well, are of Kurdish descent. We've even seen this to a smaller extent here in the United States. We've had quite a few Kurdish immigrants show up here over the years, in particular in the 70s, but carrying through through today. And actually, of particular note, because of those of you who know me, I'm based in Tennessee right now, the largest Kurdish community in the United States is actually in Tennessee. It's in Nashville. There's actually a, a community there called Little Kurdistan and the Kurdish population there is estimated to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 11 to 12,000. Now ethnically, there is some debate about this, but the Kurds probably come from a handful of ethnic tribes and other groups in the northwestern Iran region, and most Kurds consider themselves ancestors of the Medes. The Medes were an ancient Iranian people group that lived in that northwestern Iran area, probably in the neighborhood of 1000 BC or so, and they really emerged as a dominant people group in the 800, maybe 700 BC. But early documentation of these groups and kind of where the Kurds came from are hard to come by. Uh, The usage of the term Kurd in those very early years Was probably much more of a social term which referenced nomads that lived in an area rather than any sort of concrete ethnic group. The ethnicity part came about later. Now we do see them start to become a much bigger deal going into the medieval period and they kind of appear fairly sporadically in a lot of these Arabic sources from that time period. At the time though the term was still not used consistently for a specific people group but rather kind of a group of tribes but this ethnic identity started to materialize during this middle ages period and by the time you get to the 12th and 13th centuries uh, we're, we're in a.d now you can really find some very clear evidence of the kurds being their own people group during this time period there were quite a few different kurdish dynasties that were founded and flourished and they ruled the kind of kurdish areas and the surrounding neighborhoods armenia azerbaijan egypt syria you know those are the modern terms for it But by the 11th century, a lot of those Kurdish dynasties had started to crumble because the Turks invaded and the Kurdish areas became kind of incorporated under the the Silyuk Turk dynasty some of the people groups of the Kurds did manage to kind of re-establish themselves in the 12th century under the leadership of a man named Saladin. Now Saladin is probably one of the most famous military commanders of all time and he led a lot of the military campaigns against the crusaders in the middle east and to this day Saladin is probably considered the most famous Kurd in all of history. Now, over the next several centuries, there's a lot of things that happened to this people group, but I'm going to skip ahead and jump to the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was a Muslim caliphate, more or less, that ruled across Southeast Europe, West Asia, and North Africa from like the 14th century all the way up until the early 20th century, actually, the the 1900s. It was founded in Turkey and was often thought of as kind of a Turkish empire. But during the 16th and 17th centuries, when it was at its strongest power under the reign of a man by the name of Suleiman, this was a huge, multinational, multilingual empire that controlled a large, large chunk of the world. It was one of the larger empires that we've ever seen, and it was one of the key players on the world stage kind of connecting a lot of the Eastern world with the Western world. And in fact they actually played a pretty big role in world war one they joined on the side of germany they allied with germany in the early 20th century and joined world war one on the side of the central powers now the ottomans are important to understanding the kurds because during this time period the kurdish people were kind of uh, integrated into the ottomans now they were never fully assimilated but most of the kurdish rule did kind of fall under the ottoman control now the ottomans were not super interested in interfering with local politics and local issues, so a lot of the local chiefs and leaders of the Kurds were installed as the governors or the governorships of the Ottomans. So they were able to kind of largely maintain some of their original structure. But they were part of the Ottoman Empire. They were integrated fairly successfully into that. But in the late 1800s, you start to see the Kurdish nationalist movement take root. And you start to see a couple uprisings. There was a powerful Kurdish landowner. He was head of a powerful family. His name was Sheikh Ubedullah. And he basically demanded political autonomy, independence for the Kurds. They wanted their own state without any sort of any interference from the Turk Ottomans or the Persians who were also in the area. And this uprising was quashed fairly quickly by the Ottomans, it was it was suppressed. But this Kurdish nationalist movement managed to really take root and started to grow. And so when World War One happened, the Ottomans again joined on the side of Germany, so they lost. And when they did a lot of their territory got partitioned off and the kurdish nationalist movement really emerged after world war one and so through the teens and 20s and 30s you see a lot of revolts by kurdish groups now the turks responded by brutally brutally quashing them to the point where there was almost an ethnic cleansing of the kurds and actually of the armenians during this time period as well and so the Turks either sought to exterminate the Kurds or to deport them. And they sent them to a lot of different areas. And mostly the reason for this is they were trying to weaken a lot of the political influence that the Kurds have by mostly taking them out of their their kind of ancestral lands where their people are from, and then dispersing them into smaller communities throughout the area. And by the end of World War One, and kind of especially going into the next few years, there have been something like 600 to 700,000 Kurds that have been forcibly taken from their homes and moved elsewhere. But we still saw this undercurrent of Kurdish nationalism, and revolt after revolt takes place. You get into the 20s and 30s, and there's quite a few large-scale revolts that start to take place still in these Kurdish regions. And as the Middle East was carved up during this time period, largely by the winning powers in the world wars, Uh, You saw the Kurds get divided across multiple borders. As I mentioned, there's four main countries. They're divided across Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. But this didn't solve many problems. And throughout, you get into the 50s, 60s, 70s. We see this Kurdish nationalist movement continue to grow. It continues to evolve and take shape. You start to see some militant separatist groups pop up. You have the PKK. They were kind of a 70s movement that started out as kind of Marxist-Leninist, but largely have spun into kind of a Kurdish nationalist group, and they still exist today. They're actually involved in Syria in the Syrian civil war. They're considered a terrorist group by a lot of the world right now as well. But this this Kurdish nationalism has really still stuck through, and we see it even today. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the Kurds are considered the largest ethnic group in the world without a state. And that is true. But because of the way that they kind of run themselves in several of these areas, they are almost like proto-states. They run semi-autonomously in Iraq. They have a region in northeastern Syria that they kind of run semi-autonomously. Now, this has caused many problems over the years. As I mentioned, Saddam Hussein famously gassed and persecuted a lot of the Kurds. The Kurds have seen a lot of violence against them under uh, Turkey's more recent rule as well. The word Kurd or Kurdistan or Kurdish have actually been banned by the Turkish government. The Kurdish language was prohibited in public life. It's actually been prohibited in private life too, but you can't really enforce that very well. And through the 80s and 90s, you had that PKK, that militant group, and the Turkish military were actually engaged in almost an open civil war between the two. And this nationalist movement, this nationalist fervor among the Kurds, can really be found in all areas. Now the one place though that you'd see it the least is probably the country of Iran, uh, to the point where actually there's a fairly large number of Iranian Kurds that show zero interest in any sort of nationalism. Largely these are the Kurds of the Shia faith, and I'll get to Kurdish religion in a minute, but that means they tend to agree ideologically and religiously with the government in Tehran, which is a Shia country. And so you really only see the Kurdish nationalist movement in Iran and kind of the fringe areas, the peripheral Kurdish regions, like Kurdish-specific regions. Now, the fourth country I mentioned is Syria, and Syria is a place where there's a huge civil war going on right now. If you guys tune in next week, actually the next two weeks, I'll be doing a little bit on the Syrian civil war. But the Kurds do account for about 9% of Syria's population, largely in that kind of northern quadrant, northeastern quadrant. And when the Syrian civil war broke out, The Kurds became a fairly significant member of that fight. All right, let's move on to some more cultural elements. Now, as I mentioned early on, frequently they get referenced alongside a lot of religious groups, but they are an ethnic group. And traditionally, kind of as a whole, the Kurds adhere to a lot of different religions, different ideologies and belief systems. It's probably the most religiously diverse group of that entire area of the world. And this includes faiths like Islam. Islam is probably the largest, but you see uh, Alevism, you see Yazidis, you see the Zoroastrians, there's actually quite a few Christian Kurds as well. And let's talk about a couple of those in more detail. Now the majority of Kurds are Muslim and most of those are Sunni Muslim, but there is a fairly significant minority who are Shia as well. And they do tend to get along fairly well, despite a lot of the uh, disagreements between Sunnis and Shias more abroad. And then also among the Kurdish Muslims, you do see a higher prevalence of the, the Sufis, which are more of a, a mystical practicing branch of Islam. Now, when you take this Shia branch, combine some of the elements of Sufis, the Sufism, you get this more mystical faith called Alevism. And so Alevism is kind of this 13th century mystical twist on Islam. Uh, you tend to find it in Turkey as well, but also, again, a fair amount among the Kurds. But they are kind of a mix between some of the traditional Islam and a lot of the more pre-Islamic religious beliefs, some of the beliefs of the the local customs and cultures and some of the religions that existed in the area before Islam. Now, another faith that kind of predates Islam among the Kurds in this area are the Yazidis or the Yazdanism. Now, this is again pre-Islamic. It's kind of a native religion. Some people actually claim it's the original religion of the Kurds. But over time, it's kind of morphed and it actually combines aspects of several other faiths. You find Islam, Christianity, Judaism elements in this. You also find some Zoroastrianism, which I'll talk about in just a second. And Yazidis are a very close knit community. In fact, if you marry outside the Yazidi faith, you're actually automatically considered to no longer be Yazidi. The key thing here with the Yazidis is that they're sometimes even referred to as the cult of angels. And that's because they believe once God created the world, he placed the world under the care, under the protection of seven angels, including one whose name is melik Taos. Uh, he's considered the peacock angel. I don't really know where that comes from, but he is the the world ruler of the the current earth. Now, the backstory that they have for this peacock angel, Melech Taos, actually has some resemblance to the stories of a fallen angel fallen from grace and God, which you might recognize in Christian tradition as Lucifer or Satan. And so because of this similarity, a lot of other monotheistic religions in the area call Melchtaous Satan and they refer to the Yazidis as devil worshipers. This isn't quite true because the Yazidis believe that this fallen angel actually reconciles with God and is, is no longer considered to be a fallen angel, but this perception of them as devil worshipers has continued and has actually led them to be persecuted quite strictly. In fact, beginning in 2014, they were one of the key targets of ISIS, the Islamic State, in its kind of effort to rid the area of any sort of non-Islamic influences. And so the Yazidis have actually been... Uh, widely, brutally slaughtered across the region in the last few years, to the point where foreign countries, including the United States actually, have run specific missions to rescue Yazidi populations from ISIS and the brutality that they bring. Now the Yazidis, despite having some similarities to Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all kind of mixed together, they do have some more unusual beliefs as well. In particular, one of their key beliefs from the time of creation is that they are descendants of Adam. You'll notice I I said Adam and not Adam and Eve. And that's because they believe that before Adam and Eve had children, Adam managed to reproduce on his own a son by the name of Shahid bin Jair. And so this son is where you get what they believe is the ancestor of the Yazidis. So they have some kind of odd things with this. And this is the reason that the Yazidis give... For not intermarrying with other non-Yezidis, and they don't accept converts as well. You're kind of either born into Yazidism or not. Further, they actually do believe in reincarnation as well. And that over time, over lifespans, you kind of continually purify your soul. Continual reincarnation within the the group of the of Yazidis. But if something goes wrong, you can be expelled from the Yazidi community, and it's believed that when this happens, you can never convert back to the faith. And because of this, their religion is considered very pure. This is kind of ironic given that they seem to borrow elements from a lot of different religions. But they even take this to the point of not having external contact with non yazidis They do allow it to an extent, but too much contact is considered pollution of the Yazidi faith. And so because of this, Yazidis have frequently avoided some of the more national duties of like military service or living amongst other faiths. Uh, they don't borrow things from, from outsiders, but this has lessened a little bit in more recent years still because of a lot of these elements there's a lot of mystery surrounding the yazidi population the yazidi beliefs but because of the persecution they've been facing we have had more contact with them recently in the form of mostly rescuing them from isis or other extremist groups seeking to persecute them next up among kurdish religious groups are the zoroastrians this is actually considered one of the world's oldest religions it is monotheistic single god and dates back to as far as the second millennium BC. So we're talking about 2000 years before Christ, which makes it one of the first monotheistic faiths in the history of, of humanity. Now largely Zoroastrianism is considered the ancient religion of Persia, which we think of as like Iraq and Iran today. So Zoroastrianism can really be best summed up by three core values. Good thoughts, good words, good deeds. They consider themselves a very moral people group. They believe in the natural elements, they're very ecologically focused, protecting nature, they refrain from a lot of pollution. But their key kind of theological component is the belief in what they call the holy immortals. These are uh, kind of angel-like beings, I guess, that are identified as taking on certain aspects of what a good person should be, things like truth and righteousness, power and just rule, uh, long life, immortality. They're also quite big on the duality of the world in terms of good and evil. Very big concepts in Zoroastrianism. And you see other very familiar elements pop up in here as well. The idea of the golden rule, uh, heaven and hell, again the duality there. Even the concept of free will. But despite a lot of these familiar concepts that you might find in other religions as well, Zoroastrianism has really started to decline since about the Middle Ages. There are not many of them left. You do still find some in this Iraqi Kurdistan region in the Kurds. You also find some still in Iran, but actually primarily where you find Zoroastrians today are in India. And like Yazidism, they also have this belief nowadays where you really can't convert to it. You're either born into the faith or you're not. And so partly because of this, but also partly because of the spread of other faiths like Islam and Christianity, especially through that region, Zoroastrianism has really declined. Now, the last faith of the Kurds that I'm going to touch on, there are several other minority ones, but are the Christians. So Kurdish Christianity probably goes back all the way to the first century, post-Christ, first century CE. Ancient tradition suggests that the apostle Andrew was the one to bring the faith of Christianity to the Kurds. Now, the majority of Kurds did adopt Islam after the Arab conquest during one of the empires in there, but there were a lot of Kurdish converts to Christianity even during this time period. And we've actually seen it even rise in more recent years. Parts of the Bible were actually translated into the Kurdish language in the 1850s. And actually just in the 21st century, in about the year 2000, there was a Kurdish speaking Church of Christ that was established. It's the first evangelical Kurdish church in that area. It's in, it's in Iraq. And since this time period, we've actually seen a pretty Pretty big wave of Kurds converting to Christianity in the Iraqi Kurdistan region. Part of this is due to the fact that they have a much closer tie to the West than a lot of other regions, and this is because when the United States invaded Iraq after 9-11, we overthrew Saddam Hussein and the Kurds really became the United States' big ally in the region outside of Israel because they were se- the United States was seen as the saviors of their people. Saddam Hussein had been gassing them, persecuting them, killing them, and the United States came in and saved them. And so there's actually a fairly big connection now between the Iraqi Kurdistan area and the United States. There are mission trips that go there. I actually know somebody who goes there about every year or so to help with a summer camp that they do for Kurdish youth. And so today there's probably anywhere between five and 6,000 Kurdish Christians. But because there are so many different faiths in the Kurdish population, and despite having so many very fundamentalist extremist groups in the whole area, the Kurdish people are considered to be one of the few cultures in the Middle East that truly practiced religious tolerance. They're one of the most tolerant and religiously equal governments and people groups in in the whole area. And in the same vein as this religious tolerance that really sets Kurdistan apart from a lot of the neighbors in the area, there's this story that after World War II, when Israel became a nation, there were a fair amount of Kurdish Jews uh, who left Kurdistan, moved back to Israel, And there are quite a few stories about their Muslim neighbors from when they lived in the Kurdish area being very distraught over the loss of their Jewish neighbors and actually maintaining synagogues, in some cases for for decades, in honor of their friends who had left to go back to Israel. That kind of thing really speaks to what the religious tolerance is like in these Kurdish regions where they really do seem to be very open and welcoming to people of all faiths and to people of a lot of different backgrounds as well, ethnically, religiously, and otherwise. And this probably comes from the long history of suffering that the Kurdish people have gone through, that they have this kind of bond or kinship or brotherhood that they've developed over the years because of the persecution. And so they tend to accept pretty much anybody who falls under that category. But they are noted for being particularly welcoming of all kinds of faiths. Now, one kind of final... Tidbit, I think, is a really fun fact about the Kurds. Is their language because while most Kurds speak something called Northern Kurdish or sometimes called Kurmanji uh, they'll also hear Sarani which is another Kurdish dialect but there's actually a small population of Kurds that still speak Aramaic which if you're a biblical scholar at all you know that that's the language most people believe that Jesus Christ spoke and so that's kind of a, a little fun tidbit there's not many people who speak Aramaic anymore now I'm gonna go ahead and end this episode with a couple little fun facts I'm just gonna spit spit them out bullet style Um, The Kurds are culturally pretty close to the Iranian people. They celebrate things like Nuraz, which is their New Year's Day. It's very similar to the Iranian New Year's Day, takes place in March. They're really big into things like folklore. Uh, Largely that's transmitted through song, uh, sometimes through speeches. But they have a lot of folklore about nature and animals. Uh, They have the mythological creatures. Probably the most common one you'll find is about the fox. You'll also notice that the Kurds are very well known for being handy uh, with like crafts and things. Kurdish weaving is one of the most famous in the world. They are very well known for their rugs and their bags that they make. You can also find things like chessboards, jewelry, various ornaments and instruments that are come that come from the Kurdish people. In recent years, we've seen the Kurds get more into things like music and dance and cinema. Most of the themes of the cinema are around poverty and hardship, a lot of the history there. But in the last few years or so, we've seen a handful of Kurdish directors that have become very critically acclaimed. Sports-wise, the Kurds are very big into football, soccer, that is. Uh, Now, because they don't have their their own state, they don't really have a team in FIFA or anything like that. But they do have... A team that represents Iraqi Kurdistan and goes around and plays teams. And the Kurdish clubs that take place in the Iraqi soccer leagues have actually done quite well. They've won the Iraqi Premier League a couple times recently. You also see Kurds do quite well at things like taekwondo, wrestling, boxing weightlifting. They've even won a couple medals in the Olympics. And finally, probably one of the most interesting tidbits is that tattoos are quite widespread among the Kurds. And this is weird because despite having such a large Sunni Islam population under which tattoos, permanent tattoos are not permissible, we see a lot of very ancient traditional style tattoos among the Kurds. Most of these are thought to have come from pre-Islamic times, a lot of very traditional elements to them, a lot of traditional symbolism, especially religious symbolism. And actually, kind of an interesting note, too, tattoos are more prevalent among the women among the Kurds than the men. And a lot of these tattoos have meanings about protecting against evil, uh, illnesses, those type of things, or the specific tribal affiliation that that particular individual belongs to among the Kurds. But I think that's all the fun facts i'm going to hit uh we're about out of time so i'm going to go ahead and end the episode please if you're really interested in this the kurds are a fascinating people group there's a lot of really interesting stuff here i could probably speak on this for hours it's a part of the world that's very welcoming towards Americans in particular because of our role in ousting Saddam Hussein. I have a friend who's been there and he told me that when he walks into some of these Kurdish homes, they have portraits of George W. Bush on the wall because they're so grateful for being liberated from Hussein. So they tend to very much like Americans. It's one of the few places in the Middle East where you're going to go and really find that. Right now, obviously, in the last couple of years with the Islamic State problems that are going on, it may not be the safest spot until that is all settled. But these Kurdish regions are a place that are definitely on my bucket list to visit at some point in my life and I think they really should be on yours too. If you're really interested in them please do more research. This really is an interesting people group and they're right on the verge of getting their quest for independence that's been going on for at least a century or more. Especially in Iraq and Syria with the the conflict and turmoil that's been taking place there. Down the road I'd love to do another episode about the Kurds, talking about them in more detail. But hopefully this gave you an idea of who these people are, where they came from, what their role is in the Middle East, and sparked some interest in them as a whole for you. Tune in next week for a religious look at the background of the Syrian civil war. And then the week after that will be part two of the Syrian civil war. And we'll do a little bit more on the political side. I'll actually talk about the Kurds more in that time as well, and kind of their relationship to what's going on in Syria. So that should be really interesting. As always, if you're interested in continuing this conversation, find me on Facebook at J. Robert Kinney. That's the name I write fiction novels under. I'm also on Twitter at R underscore Kinney. Follow me in both places. And if you're interested in supporting me, supporting this podcast or advertising on here, please hit me up. I'd be happy to talk with you about that possibility. But until next time, I'm Justin Kinney. This is Nutshell Politics and I am out.